talked last week just about the heart. The heart is like the ground that the seed gets sown in. And to, for our, ourselves, too, to have that, that expectancy of tilling up the soil of our heart, making sure it's ready for, for the Word of God. And that really, really just requires us to be expecting, just saying, God, I, I, I just expect that you're going to speak to me tonight. So I'd encourage you, you know, you to, if you've done that tonight, just uh, as we were uh, worshiping or as we're praying, uh, just even saying that to him, just that God, I really, I, you know, I want you to speak to me. It's amazing at how he does just that. But it's, um, I see so often where um, there'll be people, you know, and I've been there too, or feel like, oh, God didn't say anything to me. He's like, he's been quiet. And a lot of times I'll have to look back and go, is because, you know, the person next to me could have heard something from, from the Lord and it was amazing. And it, it always comes back to the fact that it's, there's, there's that part of me that's that's just not open. Uh, and I just want to be in that place. I want to be in a constant place of just being open to what God would want to say and, and where, uh, what he wants to do and what change that he's bringing in, in, in me. So tonight um, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, it's um, been, an, uh, been a great book uh, to study. Uh, I hope you've had a chance to read it on your own too at home, uh, just going through it. It's, uh, it's been pretty, pretty neat. You know, as you just see the first chapter was just loaded with incredible stuff of who we are in Christ. And he wants us to get that so much so that he prays for us in that. Uh, prayed for the Ephesian church, but just praying for believers everywhere that we would understand uh, who he is. Last week was kind of one of those messages where we were, we were just talking about how dark it was. It was uh, the mes- message was uh, called A Matter of Life and Death. And that, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's, there's physical death, but there's spiritual death that's a lot more serious. And that's what we were talking about last week, that, you know, we could be dead men walking where we don't, we're, we're, we're alive outside, but inside we're not alive. And uh, he, he was just um, not, let, not leaving any kind of stone unturned in that uh, explanation of who we, who we were without him. That, that there was nothing good in us without Christ. And, and at the end, in verse 4, of chapter 2, he just starts off by saying, but God, but God is so rich in mercy. He's so rich um, in the mercy that he, and he loves us so much. Uh, There's a great, great part in there, just of the fact of it's but God. God started something, uh, and, and in that, he rescued us, and it's pretty amazing stuff. Tonight, I just want to, I want to title tonight, uh, God's magnum opus. Anybody know what a magnum opus is? Some of you are like, I think it's like a Zoolander look, you know, drop Magnum on you. Um, if you're comfortable or familiar with Charlotte's Web, Charlotte's Web, it's a movie for kids. This is where I heard the term Magnum Opus. Anybody else watch Charlotte's Web and know what the Magnum Opus of Charlotte's Web was? Nobody knows. Interesting. It simply means the great work. That's what magnum opus means, the great work. In Charlotte's Web, it was the egg sack at the very end. After all those cool letters she, she wrote in the, in the things. I know it's a kid's story. But, uh, you know, in the end, it was, that, it was that egg sack, that thing that had 513 of her little babies in it. That was her, that was her greatest creation. Um, the magnum opus, they, they give that title to the best work of, of uh, artists, uh, uh, authors, um, musicians. Beethoven, his magnum opus was the Ninth Symphony. Um, Don Quixote. If uh, my, my wife just finished reading this book, it's uh, like a hundred and something chapters. But um, Miguel de Cervantes, if that's how you pronounce his name, he, he's not around anymore. But this was his, his magnum opus. He wrote things, but this was the, this was the one. Many of you recognize this picture of famous, uh, famous piece of art? The Mona Lisa. Leonardo da Vinci's magnum opus. It was the one thing that it was his greatest work. Of all the stuff that he did, this was the greatest thing. And, and um, 
So today I want to talk about God's. What is, I mean, God is God. Everything he does is amazing. But what was his magnum opus? Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, it says this, but God, he's so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. He gave us life, it says. It wasn't, uh, and, and remember that. He gave us life and he gave it to us when? He gave us life when he raised Jesus from the dead. That's when we got life. Not, uh, uh, I've only been around for 36 and something years. Um, uh, but that's not where life started for me. Life, he says he gave us life when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's, uh, and then it says that it's only by God's grace that you've been saved. You know, it's what Christmas is really all about. It's really the only reason for any kind of celebration at Christmas. You know, Black Friday sales just happened because you got to get all those Christmas presents, you know, for cheap. And people died in the, in the process. Um, there's there's uh, this idea of how many days left till Christmas, counting them down, because you got to get stuff. And this celebration is, you know, um, uh, make sure. I had people text me today. I guess Beth told them that, you know, I'm not going to nag Mark putting lights up this year, so you can. So Bobby, uh, my, uh, one of my neighbors across town, decides he'll text me to make sure to see if I'm putting lights up. I wasn't, so he'll text me tomorrow. Um, uh, but, oh, good. Thank goodness. But there's that, um, there's that the whole idea of celebration around us that gets forgotten of the reason why. But it's a massive reason when you realize that that's where, uh, where life began for us, where the, the chance to really live, it was in this. Uh, in Galatians, we learned that it was only by God's grace that we're saved. There was nothing we could add to it. It wasn't like, hey, have Jesus and keep a whole bunch of rules. He just said, just Jesus. If you have Jesus, if you trust Jesus, it says you, you will be saved. You are saved. Um, it says in that, in that verse too, for by grace you have been saved. It was this thing of, of something that's already happened. The word saved is the word sozo. Uh, for those of you who do some Greek word studies, it, it actually means a whole lot more than just being saved. It means, it means to be kept safe and sound. It means to rescue from danger. It also means to restore to health. When he says, hey, you've been saved, it's, it's this idea of you've been restored to health. And it says you have been. That word have been translates into a couple things. It translates into you are currently or you have been in the past, but it never translates into you will be. It was always this idea of it's already happened. And Paul's been saying that all through Ephesians. He keeps saying, this is what has already happened. In, it's already happened for you. This is who you really are. And he doesn't leave that here either. In Ephesians 2, 6, he keeps going. He says, for he raised us from the dead. He raised us from the dead. Remember when last week we were talking about we were dead uh, inside? He says, but he raised us from the dead um, along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. That's in the, in the New Living. In the New King James, it talks about the, the, the wording of, of when and how. Uh, and it says this, that our, that our identity is with Jesus Christ. And it's, it's, it's this thought that God didn't give us the bare minimum of what we needed. Like it wasn't like he just saved us just enough. Uh, and that's a lot of times what we kind of look at it. We're like, we're, we look at the bare minimum of what, um, what we would need as far as salvation goes. Uh, a guilty person, they would, they would, if they, you know, had the chance, you know, guilty before the judge, the judge is going to pound the gavel, sentence them to, you know, life in prison. They plead for, you know what, please don't send me to prison. Please send me to like a halfway house or something else. Not, you know, if it's, if it's maximum security, please send me to like minimum security. Just, you know, maybe give me two years probation or something, right? They beg for, for the bare minimum. Um, but 
the Bible is so full of stories of where uh, God paints pictures of how he's just not that way. He went over and above and did incredible stuff for us. If you look at the story of the prodigal son, uh, there's a story where it talks about the prodigal son being us and the, the father who's waiting for him, being God our father. He, he, the prodigal son, he runs off. He, met, he totally messes with his dad uh, and the rest of his family. He basically takes the money from the will before his dad is dead. Basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I mean, if you girls try that, it's probably not going to go well for you, right? He's like, you know, Dad, I wish you were gone. You know, I'm taking all your money. I'm going to go spend it. And so they go and buy a Ferrari and whatever else, and they waste all the money, right? They, uh, so the, the, this, this is what this guy does. Well, he finally runs out. He runs out of money, runs out of friends, runs out of alcohol, runs out of everything that he had hoped he would find happiness in, and he finds himself in that pig pen. Many of you know that story. At the end, he says, what happens? He's walking home, and, and he's already planned what he's going to say to his dad. If you know the story, as he's walking home, before he even leaves the pig pen, he says, I'm just going to go back to my dad and say, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son, but I would like to be a slave. I want to be a slave. I want to be a servant. I'm not worthy to be your son. That's the, that, those are the true words of, of someone who's guilty. So that, that idea of, oh, man, God, I... I, I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve freedom. I've been a really rotten person, but if, you know, if you would just save me, like if I could just make it into heaven, that's, that's kind of what we're asking, right? There's that, there's that thought that, that, that uh, is on us that, hey, if, if we got into heaven, that would be sweet. You know, that, at least that, that's the, the, the bare minimum. He says there's way more than that. And what happens when the son gets home? The dad just runs out and he says to his dad, dad, and his dad wants to hug him. He's like, wait, dad, I got a speech. You know, dad, I just, I don't want to be, I'm not worthy to be your son. I just want to be a slave. At least I can eat in your house. And he says, you're my son that never changed. What's he do? Gets the best robe, gets new shoes for him, puts a, puts a ring on him, hugs him, kisses him, you know, gets the best meal, takes him to the Mandarin or whatever. It's like, no, nah, the keg, you know, buys the best steak for him. It's like, man, we're so glad you're home. What does he do? He's extravagant in, in what he does for his son. There's another story, and I just want to read it to you tonight. It's in, in 2, Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 9. If you just go there, uh, do you got your Bibles with you? Or is it up? It's up on the screen again. It is? Cool. Maybe not. 2 Samuel chapter 9. I want, if you don't have it, I just want you to listen to it. I want you to listen to a couple things. I want you to listen in, in, this, um, in this story of what Mephibosheth, he's the one character, of who he thinks he is. I want you just to try and remember some of the things that he says about himself and he thinks about himself and, um, and who he really is based, on, based on, the, on the story. So it says, One day David asked, Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So he summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants, and he says, Are you Ziba? The king said, Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. And Ziba replied and said, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Okay, just remember that. So the king said in verse 4, where is he? In Lodibar, Ziba told him, at the home of Maker, son of Amiel. So he's not even living in his own house, but he's in a place called Lodibar. Lodibar, the translation of Lodibar is not a pasture. So it's basically not a good place for raising or grazing sheep. That's where he is. And a lot of people, that's where they made their living from uh, back then is, is, is places where animals could graze. And he's living in a place where that's not happening. So it says that um, in verse 6, his name, 
Um, or so in verse 5, so David sent for him and brought him from Maker's home. So his name was Mephibosheth, and he was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I'll give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. Remember that. And you will eat here with me at the king's table. Remember that too. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully again and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant and said, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. So you and your sons and servants, you're to farm the land for him, produce food for your master's household. Uh, But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. So then Ziba says that he'll do all that. And then it says that down there um, at the end of verse 11, and from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at, the, at um, David's table like one of the king's own sons. And then it says that he had a young son named Micah. And, and verse 13, Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. It says again, there's an amazing story. Here's this guy, Mephibosheth, who's a cripple. He lives in a place with somebody. He's living at somebody else's house. He's probably on, sleeping on that guy's couch, you know, because he, he probably doesn't have his own place. He's living in a place that's not, you know, the greatest part of town to live in. And it's like he gets a phone call. Like, uh, you know, you ever get those phone calls or the text that says, uh, we need to talk, and that's all it says? You know, or they call you like, yeah, we need to talk. Uh, where, when can we meet? And you're just like, oh, no, what did I do? I find that happens a lot more now to me on the other side. I find people, every time I tell them, hey, we need to talk, or hey, can we talk, they always think they're in trouble. And I'm like, they're like when, the, when the pastor asks if we need to talk, that's not a good sign. You're not in trouble. Uh, but but I, I remember having those moments where somebody's like, hey, hey, we need to talk. I was like, oh, you know, oh, what did I do? And you start thinking back, and like, did I do something wrong? I'm not sure what I did. And then, uh, then you find out, all of a sudden they say, this week it happened to me, and I'm talking to the guy, and he's like, yeah, I just... He says, oh, no, no worries. I just want to know if you want to go to the Toronto Maple Leafs game on Tuesday night. Uh, we're going to eat dinner at the, at the uh, arena, and it's all paid for. You want to go? And I'm like, yeah, for sure I want to go. Like, that's, that's a great phone call. I didn't expect that to be what the, what the phone call was um, because there's that thought of it's going to be bad. Well, this guy, he's getting called by the king, and it's like, uh-oh, what did I do? You know, I, I'm a dead man. Uh, he doesn't, he's unaware of the covenant that his dad uh, had with with uh, the king, doesn't realize that he's going there for that reason. So he goes there and it says in verse 6, he bows down. He says, I'm your servant. Again, says, I, you know, basically I want to be a slave. In verse 7, it says, David says to him, don't be afraid. What does that tell you that Mephibosheth probably looked like? Like he was afraid. You don't just walk up to somebody and say, hey, you know, Jordan, don't be afraid. He's like, well, I'm not. He, this guy was terrified. And so David says, don't be afraid. It's, it says that in verse 7 that he says, I'm giving you all the property that your grandfather had. Do you know who his grandfather was? The king of Israel. He's like, I'm giving you all the property that the king had. That's some, it, it's not the whole country, but it's a pretty substantial amount of, of property that he's giving to him. He thought, all I own is nothing. I own a couch in Lodi Bar. He says, but I'm giving you everything. It says that he's um, eating at the king's table like his son's. He at first thinks he's just a servant or like an enemy of the king and says then, he says, I'll let him eat at the thing. And he says, you know what, why would you eat, even after all of that, he says, why, what, what, why would you help a dead dog such as me? Not even a dog, just like a dead dog, worth nothing. There's something so interesting in these stories is that, that they're pictures of what God wants to do for us. 
what he has done for us, and that there's so many times we're unaware of the covenant that we have with him. This guy, Mephibosheth, was the beneficiary of a covenant that he had nothing to do with. That's the trick here, too. You're like, well, yeah, that was maybe back then, but, you know, you, you don't know me. I, I don't deserve anything like that. You're right. Neither do I. But it's not based on what we deserve. It's based on, on who he is. And that's what God's saying to the Ephesians in, in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you're, you're getting a completely new identity. If you watch Dora the Explorer, um, probably don't, but I do because I have kids that age. And there's one, uh, Dora the Explorer, where they, they, have, they find this blue morpho butterfly. Um, and the blue morpho butterfly doesn't start out blue. It starts out actually like this. This ugly caterpillar. Absolutely nothing great about it. It's kind of creepy looking. But this ground-dwelling, you know, ugly caterpillar turns into this. Absolutely amazing. Completely different. And many of you, you know that. But just think about the fact of the, the completely new identity that the butterfly has. It's not a caterpillar. It's not, it's not a little bit different. It's completely different. And this is what Paul is saying um, to the Ephesians. He's saying, you know what? You're nothing like you were before. In Christ, it's not like you're a little bit better off than you were back then. He says, you are completely changed. Your identity is completely different. So Paul says, you know, uh, that as we identify with Christ, we become a new creation. In 2 Corinthians, he says to that church, he says, you are a new creation. Something uncommon, something unheard of, something that's never existed before. That's you. He says, you're not just a bit better than you were. And then in Ephesians, he's, he's, he's talking about this, this whole idea of, you know, we were crucified with Christ. We were buried in baptism with Christ. He talks about that in Galatians and in Romans. And then here he says, in Ephesians, he says that we are raised together from the dead with Christ. That's when it happened for us. We were raised with him and seated with him together in heavenly places in Christ. Remember how we were talking about a couple weeks ago where Jesus is seated in heavenly places and he is over everything? He's over every principality, over every power, over every demonic thing, over every sickness, over every name, over everything. He's over it. He says that's where he seated us. Why is Paul praying so passionately for them that their eyes would be open to see it? It's because it's so hard to see. It's one of those things that it's like, my brain doesn't, doesn't get that. And he says, you're not going to get it here. I'm praying that the eyes of your understanding, that the heart, that in your knowledge of Jesus Christ, you're going to get the fact of who you really are. Because it's, as we understand those things, as we grow in that, that, we begin to see what it's like to be seated with him. It's going to be eternity that we're there with him. We're going to rule and reign with him. But he says that's already starts here. The kingdom starts uh, working in your life here. The same power that put Jesus there uh, is, is working in you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. He says in verse 6 that we're seated with him in the heavenly places. And in verse, verse 7, it says this. So... God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. It's basically saying in this that, you know what, he can point to us. In future generations, he can point back to this group of people saying, listen, you guys in Kingsway, you know what, you're my trophies. Look at the, the, the amount of grace, the amount of kindness that I've shown to you is what he can show. But in the New King James, it also it talks about it in a different way. But it's, it basically says this, that, that forever, for all ages, he's going to be showing you that grace. He's going to be showing you that kindness. That wasn't just one of these things of like, hey, you know what, uh, Mephibosheth, come on out of Lodi Bar for a dinner at my house, and then you can go back again. He said, once you get out of there, you're out of there. 
once you have new life, you, you don't go back. That, that, that butterfly never goes back to being a caterpillar. You can't go back. He, he's, he's saying, this is, what, this is what I've done, and this is how life goes on from here. The richness of his grace uh, and kindness, it carries on forever. It's like winning a lottery that pays you every year. They have one of those now uh, that, you know, you get, you get paid an amount every year until you die. Like, that's a pretty good lottery to win if you're going to play or win lotteries. But that, the, the same idea here is that this, this grace, this kindness keeps happening in your life. In 2 verse, um, uh, verse 8, it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Um, verse 9, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so no one can boast about it. He says you've been saved uh, by grace through faith. And it says even the faith wasn't yours. Even that was a gift from God to you. What's he saying? He's not saying, hey, God chose who's going to be saved. He gave faith to the ones who are going to be saved. He's, he wasn't saying that. Romans 12 verse 3 tells us that God gave everyone a measure of faith. That, that that's what he gave, that, that, that chance of faith to believe uh, in him. It's been given to every person. But he says this is a, this is a thought, is to realize that God did it all. So you don't have to rely on anything of yourself. It's just this idea of how amazing it is. He says it's not by works. Salvation is never earned. So there's a lot of times where you think, hey, there's got to be works involved. It's not, it's not, salvation is not like a paycheck where you work really hard and then they pay you. You don't go to your boss and go, oh, thank you so much for this paycheck. I can't believe you gave me a paycheck. You're like, I earned it, right? I worked for that. You, you owe it to me. He's saying that's not, what, that's not what salvation is like at all. That's not what this grace, that's not what this gift of life is at all. It's basically like you um, getting a lottery ticket again that someone gave you. Someone gives you a, a winning ticket worth millions of dollars and you didn't, you didn't earn it, you didn't find it, you didn't buy it, you didn't try to do anything to get it. You just, he just gave it to you. And, but it's worth an incredible amount. The thing with that is it's only good if you actually cash it in. It's only good if you say, you know what, I, I believe this and cash it in. Um, there is a thought of faith and works and you look in the Bible and you look at James and it talks, well, Mark, I thought there is supposed to be some works. You know, how do you know someone's saved? You know, that person, they, they say they're a Christian, but there's nothing in their life that looks like they're a Christian at all. It's true that there's faith and works and they work together. You actually need both for either one of them to be alive. If you don't have, you know, if you have faith without works, it's dead faith. He says, if your faith doesn't motivate you to do stuff, it's really not faith at all. And that has been real challenging for me because I think, hey, there's certain things I believe, but what works in my life tell anyone watching that that's what I believe. What do I really believe about things? What do I really believe about healing? What do I really believe about salvation? What do I really believe about evangelism? What do I really believe about Jesus? What do I really believe? Because the works show what you really believe. And it says that anything that doesn't have those works, that faith is just dead faith. It says the other side is also true, that if you have works you're trying to work things out, but you don't actually have the faith or the belief. It's like they say the other religions, that's how they work. There's, it's, you've got to do, you've got to do, you've got to do. Because if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, that, those works are dead. Um, Wes, in, in his series that he's doing, he compared it to a rowboat. Where if you're in a rowboat and you've got two oars, one's faith and one's works. If you only pull on one oar, you're just going to go in circles every time. If it's just works, just works, just works, you're going in circles. If it's just faith, just faith, just faith, just going in circles. He says both of those things going together. It says that it's, it's the thought, too, of doing one first, the right one first. Have faith first. Allow faith to be the one that motivates works. The works are things that grow in your life as a result of it. There's no amount of good deeds that will save you. None. You know, the Bible just says in Romans 10, too, that it's believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that you'll be saved. It says believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, and then confessing with your mouth that he's master in your life. That's the thing that says you will be saved. Um, Ephesians 2 verse 10, after all of what he's saying, this is our last verse tonight. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says this, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. We're his masterpiece. See, a while back, a couple years ago, we taught on who we are in Christ, and we gave you a whole list of verses. This was one of them. Saying to Beth, as I uh, had been studying this, I sat down with her, and I was like, you know, hon, it's really crazy. You can read a verse a hundred times, and then you read it in context, and it's something completely different. You know, because I always read this looking at it, go, wow, we are, I'm God's masterpiece. I am quite something. You know, like, it's, it's, all, it's, all, about, it's all about me. Like, I'm like God's greatest creation. And she, she said, I knew you shouldn't be thinking like that, right? Like my wife's put on that planet to humble me. But um, this, uh, this thought of we are his masterpiece is always what I thought because it's such a great verse. You could, you could put it on a mug and it would, be, like, it would be amazing. Except that the context of what everything Paul is talking about doesn't really lend us uh, to, uh, or allow us that thought. He says we are his masterpiece or his creation. The word is poema. Uh, that word is only used twice in the New Testament. The other time it's used is in Romans chapter 1 where he's talking about creation, about how God created the planet, how that whole creation, that poema is uh, showing his glory to people and they don't see it. But he said this, that we are his masterpiece, his magnum opus, uh, his great, great work. What's he actually saying? He's saying that this whole idea of rescuing us This idea from verse 4 all the way down to verse 10. But God, so rich in grace and so rich in mercy, in his great love for us, plans his rescue mission to come and save us, to do everything that's required for us to be saved, for us to to come back to relationship with him, to seat us in heavenly places with him, to have uh, us already being um, blessed with every spiritual blessing, doing all of that. That is his great work. That's his, it, that's his great, uh, his, it, the greatest thing that he's done is this, this whole chance for, for um, new life. And it says he's created us new. He made us new in Christ so that we might walk in the way that he designed. He designed a type of life, if you think about it, with Adam and Eve, where those, they had it made. They, they just ate fruit in the garden. They didn't have to do laundry. And uh, they had a chance just to hang out with God all the time. That was their, that was their life. So they would serve and work with God. Adam was naming animals with God. Either they, they were just living life with God. That was what life was designed to be. Sin totally destroyed that. Every evil thing we have on this planet is a result of, of sin. Uh, that happened to our, it, it happened uh, at that point. But he says, this is what Jesus came to do, to restore that. To restore the poema, the creation what was originally his greatest creation. He says now what was originally going to be his magnum opus, the, the great work that got destroyed. He says, I'm going to redo it. I'm going to make it again. The great work is this, that you can have it all in Christ, that this is who you are in Christ. And he restores that. What does he restore? Relationship with Heavenly Father. He restores your needs being taken care of. He restores the fact that we can serve the Lord and serve one another and that we can enjoy him and each other. Um, there's something so incredible when you, when you think about this thought. It's doing that, though, thinking about it, letting it sink in and realizing, okay, God, you didn't just write Ephesians just so there was another book in the Bible. Paul wasn't just writing this just so it was there. He's writing it so it would go from here to here, saying this is who you are in Christ. Don't miss out on that. Don't, uh, don't, don't 
um, don't treat it lightly because it is the greatest thing that he's ever done. The greatest thing that he's ever done is given us the chance to have relationship with him. Not bare minimum, maximum. And, you know, I think even for myself, just as I'm going through this, learning again that I'm just scratching the surface on what it is to have relationship with Jesus Christ. But as we go through that, as we continue just to, to allow him to, to plant that in our hearts, that'll grow and bear fruit in our lives. I would encourage you guys uh, the same. Just be just sowing Ephesians into your heart. Some of you are reading through the Bible, reading through different things. I'd encourage you to read through this. You know, go through Ephesians 2 this week and just uh, read with that thought again. Okay, God, what is it that you were doing? What is this uh, great work and where do I fit in? Because uh, you do fit in. There's a part that, that is definitely for you. Last week we talked about the matter of life and death. This is the part of where it talks about the life. Last week was all about death, not really fun. This week, just talking about the life, life that we have in Jesus Christ. So I want to, I'm going to just, we're going to close in prayer tonight. But um, I, I want to open the uh, floor again, just to thoughts or questions of what you guys might be learning as well. And we're going to do that from there. Father, I just, I pray tonight, God, that as this word, as we, as we look at it, as we sow it into our hearts, uh, God, I pray that, that there would be nothing that steals it out of there that nothing chokes it out, that it doesn't just grow up and die real quick. But God, I pray that it grows and bears fruit in many lives here tonight. just want to say thank you for loving us enough to rescue us. Thank you for loving us enough to send your son for us. It's absolutely amazing. God, I pray tonight that by your spirit, you'd bring life to each person in, uh, in, in, in where they're at in life, that, that the parts of this that matter for them now that you would uh, reveal that in their hearts i thank you for that thank you for this chance we have to do this tonight pray that it's all to your glory and uh, and to, to your fame lord for your for your kingdom for the chance that people would know you uh, and love you I just thank you for that opportunity to be a part of that in your name i pray amen